we're thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70,000 men in the Silver Dome uh, that day. My friend got up and preached. He said one of the greatest messages that he felt he had ever preached before. The Spirit of God was upon him. He was so excited when he got done. He had, he had gotten beyond the anxiety, gotten beyond speaking uh, to such a large crowd with even the reverberation, he said, of his voice echoing every time he spoke. He was able to super, surpass all of that to give a coherent and clear presentation of the gospel and a mandate for men to follow Christ. And then he said he got onto the plane to head home And a friend called him on his cell phone and said, you're not going to believe it. He said, yesterday you spoke and and today you're on the front page of the Detroit Free Press newspaper. And he says, I got to go. He said, the plane's about to take off. And for the hour flight back between Detroit and Chicago, my friend on a piece of paper that he showed me some time later, all of his plans, he had made the front page He had spoken in front of thousands the new life he was going to live, the way the ministry was going to go. And you see on there, we'll have to hire a a marketing group. We'll have to uh, make sure we have staff to take care of the needs. More of his books were sold at Promise Keepers than any other event he had ever been a part of. And he says, now I make the front page. God is good. And now God's going to turn everything around. And it's going to be a new day for me and my ministry. And so he was so excited, waiting to get back home. He travels back to the Chicagoland area, and his friend comes over as soon as he makes it back from Detroit. And he brings the newspaper, and he says, I've never been so excited to see anything in my life. And he opens the paper, and in big, bold lettering, it says, Promise Keepers not bringing in the numbers as they did before. And there's my friend on the front page preaching his heart out. The thrill of victory... And he would be known as the guy who wasn't bringing in the numbers for promise keepers. The agony of defeat. Elijah experiences the thrill of victory. But just like in our lives today, those victories are few and far between. And it seems like we live in the valleys between those two high points. Elijah has seen God work, and we have seen God work in mighty ways. But right when everything seems to be going well, our worlds begin to fall apart. 1 Kings 19 is the world falling apart for our prophet friend. And just like Elijah, we're going to have times of great victory. But brothers and sisters, it isn't what we do as Christians in our times of victory but it is what do we do when the going gets tough, when the bad news comes, when we feel like giving in, that is where our true uh, Christianity will be put to a test. And Elijah's put to the test. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Kings 19 this morning. I'm going to read all 21 verses uh, of our text. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look to our text together this morning. Now Ahab told Jezebel, everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. 
while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he laid down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nifshni king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholeh, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve the 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him. And he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he sent out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you show us all the warts, all the messes that we have as people. Lord, I'm thank you for this chapter. 
If it wasn't for this chapter, I might begin to enshrine Elijah into a man that he was not. Because the book of James says he was a man just like us. A man who you use greatly, just as you do with us today. But a man who was flawed. A man who was broken. A man who struggled with depression and despair. A man who many times found himself running into the battle, now finds himself running away from the fight. Oh Lord, how 1 Kings 19 is a picture of your servant who is preaching today. Broken, flawed, messed up. And yet, Lord, today we will learn that you are not done with your servants. I take solace in the fact that you're not done with me. Though I am prone to wander, though I am prone to leave the God I love, Lord, you are the one who comes running after me. And you come running after each of these that are in your presence today. Teach us from your word. Lord, I pray a special request upon me, your servant. Lord, for some reason today, my mind is wandering with all kinds of thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guard my heart and mind so that I can speak to your people today clearly so that they can be edified and built up for the work of the gospel ministry. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1 Kings 19, we learn that when the going gets tough, as my friend Billy Ocean, the 1980s singer, would say, the tough get going. But how are we to do that? How are we to rise above when our world caves in? The first thing we must recognize and understand is the misery that we can experience as Christians. The misery that we can experience as Christians. Being discouraged, being depressed is not fun. If you've ever experienced depression or discouragement or despair, you will recognize that first point, that it is misery that we can experience. That it is miserable to be in that place. Those days seem to go on forever. While there may be parties going on around you, you can't see any of that. The only thing you experience is your pain. But what would cause that in the life of Elijah? He was a man of God, a prophet who God had used to do amazing things. What would have caused that? God, even though he had proven himself faithful over and over again, Elijah finds himself in our text today completely broken, scared for his life, and running. What allowed for this change? Well, we know in the text, it says in verse 1, now Ahab tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Verse 2 says, so Jezebel, being the woman that she was, sends a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. What Jezebel is saying is you're a dead man, Elijah. Before the day dawns tomorrow, I will find you and I will 
kill you. And if you want to know if I'm going to do that or not, just look at the ones that I've killed. Remember, she's been relieving the land of prophets during the time of famine. And so we see Jezebel on the hunt. And so what do we see Elijah doing? Elijah's a wanted man. This is nothing new for the prophet. He's been wanted for years. He was wanted the moment that he had stepped out of Ahab's court and said there would not be rain. Jezebel and Ahab had been traveling all over the countryside looking for Elijah. And so why would this change his response? Because he had never gone off running before. But he had done exactly what God wanted him to do. I think what happened was that Elijah had determined what God's plans were in his life. I know that because I know that's how I respond. God, I know if you allow me to do this, this, and this, then those three things must equal this. And we begin to put together these arithmetic um, solutions to God's will and his plan. So let me walk through what I think Elijah was thinking. Elijah says, God, you have called me. And I have gone and I brought the word of the Lord to Ahab that it would never be neither dew nor rain on this land except by the command of my word. I did that. Then you told me to go off to Kareth, the ravine there, and you were so gracious in taking care of me. Then you told me to go to Zarephath, and you were gracious in taking care of me there. Then you told me to go present myself to Ahab, and I've done that. You then uh, advised me to put together this plan, this test that would show you to be victorious over the prophets of Baal. I did that even in my prayer. I acknowledge you, God. All this has happened because of your word, O Lord. And I asked you for rain or for fire to come, and it did. The people bowed the knee. We slaughtered the prophets of Baal. I went to the mountainside. I prayed that it would rain. And after some time, you, you took care of it. Now I'm done, right? Ahab and Jezebel, they should bow the knee as well. Commentators believe that, uh, that in fact, the Israelites' um, revival was short-lived. And Ahab was, de- I'm sorry, Elijah was depressed that the outcome that he expected didn't occur. Have you ever had your hopes dashed? That you thought, just when I thought I was done, just when I thought everything was complete and I had finished my work, someone comes and says, oh, by the way, you you forgot assignment 9, 10, and 11. But I thought it was only eight assignments in this coursework. I think what happens with Elijah is that he's blown away that Jezebel's going to come after him because he thinks that, hey, I've done everything I'm going to. I think the other thing is, is that he thinks that God has exercised all of his tricks, if you will. There's no more threat of famine. He's shown fireworks from heaven. Now what is a man to do? And he runs for his life, the text says. I want to look at that for a moment and understand some think that Jezebel wasn't going to kill him. And it's hard to understand whether she was going to kill him or not. I think that she was smart. I think she was calculated. 
The queen goes after him, and she sends a messenger. Why not just send the assassin to kill the guy? I think she knew that if she assassinated Elijah, there could be a rebellion on her hands. Elijah was a very prominent figure, and he had shown very many signs of being the prophet of God that he said he was. So what I think Elijah was being threatened with was that, I'm going to make your life miserable. I will come after you. And I think she was hoping he would flee, and he does exactly that. Because he gets up, and he starts, there go my notes, he starts to run. Now notice a couple things about this. First of all, when we have these experiences, we run in fear. We run away in fear. Here's the great Elijah standing before the 450 prophets of Baal. And this woman threatens him. The same woman who has threatened him over and over again. And notice a couple things that happen. First of all, write this in your outline somewhere in the margin. His action. His action. He runs for his life. This is not a sauntering through the valley. This is running with great amount of fear. His life is at stake. He's got to get out of Dodge, and he has to get out of there as quickly as possible. I see this every once in a while when my middle son aggravates my oldest son. And then my oldest son gets up, and the middle son runs for his life. Screams like a little sissy girl. He's not here. He can't hear that. And there's fear and trepidation. He's going to get whooped on. This is not just saying, you know what, I better go. Things are a little tense around here. He runs. Notice the second thing that he does. Not only does he run for his life, totally out of character for a man who has stood up against the masses, for a man who has stood up against the king before. But notice his abandonment. In verse 19, he says he was afraid. He ran for his life. In verse 3, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And it says, while he himself went another day's journey into the desert, he travels about 80 miles from where he was at to Beersheba. And he does that. And then that attendant that was with him in our text in 18, verse 41 through 46, is left there, and he goes even farther. How many times when the going has gotten tough for you as a person, as an individual, that you have isolated yourself from the world around you. Right when you need people to speak words of encouragement into you, you say, I just want to be alone with my thoughts. Elijah does that. And he abandons the companion that is with him. He travels a day's journey, it says, into the wilderness. He's all alone. He's afraid. And my phrase for my brother is, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is not the same Elijah that we saw. What happened? I want to notice one more thing. Not only his action and his abandonment, but his attention. While it's not explicit in the text, I want you to know that every time Elijah did something, he did so by the word of the Lord. Notice the many times that it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go here. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go there, do this, do that. This is the first time we see that Elijah heads somewhere and God has not spoken. Be very careful, my brothers and sisters, 
when we start doing our own thing without seeking the will of God in it. James says that we should not be so proudful to say, I will go to this city and do business this year, and then we'll go to that city and do business. But our phrase that we should use and the heart that we should have is, if it is God's will, we will do this in that city. If it's God's will, we will do that in that city. Elijah goes, never stopping to ask whether or not he should head that way. His attention has gone off of God and is now onto his problems. Peter had that problem. Remember Peter in the boat with Jesus? Jesus is out on the water, and he's walking towards them in the boat, but he has no water skis, he has nothing. And Peter says, let me come out to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter steps out into the water, and he's doing fine as long as his eyes are on his Savior. But his eyes break from his Savior because the waves were getting rocky. And he looks down, and remember what happens in that great Sunday school lesson that we learned? He begins to sink. Brothers and sisters, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we will sink. Elijah takes his eyes off of Jesus and becomes despondent. He becomes afraid. And it shows you that it wasn't Elijah who was doing all these great things, but it was God. Because if it was just Elijah, if it was just you and I, we would run away in fear. He had taken his attention off of God and onto earthly things. Notice that caused him to rationalize some feelings. He rationalizes his feelings. Our loner prophet comes to a lone broom tree, it says. While he himself went a day's journey, verse 4, into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he may die. I want you to understand a couple things here. Right when things are looking bad, I'm waiting for Elijah to, to, to come to his senses. And he finds a tree in the wilderness, and he says, okay, enough is enough. I've traveled far enough. I'm alone. Maybe it's time to go to God. Some of us do that. Some of us have a ready routine of when the going gets tough. The first time we ever talk to God is when we're at the end of ourselves, and that's good, but it's not soon enough. A lot of the time we get to the end of ourselves because somewhere in the middle we didn't stop and ask the question, maybe I should go to God. And so Elijah comes to his senses and he prays. Nice job, Elijah. Little late, little delayed, but hey, at least you got there. And so I'm excited to see what he's going to do. And so I can imagine my brother getting down on his knees and and folding his hand like a good prophet would, closing his eyes. The prayer is simple. Dear God, kill me. I've had enough. If we were honest, I am sure that some of us have prayed that prayer. I don't think that what Elijah is is suicidal, if you will. I don't think he's thinking about taking his own life, but he's dying for someone to do it. Now, this is where the irrationale comes in. If he really, truly wanted to die, I just would have waited for Jezebel. You ever think about that? Jezebel said, I could kill you. Okay, I'm here. I want to die anyway. So here's the spot. Come. You'll find me. You're not going to get any fight. Just put me to death and we'll be happy. You're doing me a service. Thank you. He prays that he will die. Oh, he is is so far gone. 
Why does he pray that he would die? Notice a couple things. First of all, Elijah stopped uh, looking at God and focused in on his problems as we've addressed. And really the portion that I want to nail in this is that he had forgotten that God is sovereign. That God is in control. And a lot of times we begin to forget that God is in control. No matter what comes, no matter how much of a shock it is in our lives, God is in control. I wonder if God was laughing when Jezebel made that claim. Let the gods be so ever severe with me if I don't kill you. I wonder if God let out this big chuckle. Are you kidding me? You can't do a thing, you dingbat, without me allowing it to be done. You can threaten all you want, Jezebel, but your days are numbered, sister. I know when they began, and I know when they are going to end. But there's Elijah Instead of focusing in on the supreme God and the sovereign God that he serves, he's listening to this dumb woman spout off in anger trying to show how strong she is to her nation and to her dingbat husband. What a joke. Second, he cuts himself from all fellowship. He's all alone. I wonder if he got to that broom tree and just started singing the Louis Armstrong song, Nobody Knows. The troubles I've seen, nobody knows. Just like a basset hound. My parents had a basset hound, Winston. Winston Churchill Bedall. I told my dad he looked just like him. (laughs) He didn't like that, by the way. But that dog used to bellow. Ooh. I wonder if that was Elijah. You know how pathetic we look when we get that way? I'm not trying to diminish it, and I know there's a lot of hurts and pains, and I've been there. But man, we can just really look pathetic. And he's sitting there under that broom tree just just bellowing out, nobody's with me. Well, dummy, you left your companion in Beersheba. Why are you crying about being all alone? You were the one who ran off. They didn't leave you. Notice he stops interceding for others. Every one of his prayers before this is, Lord, use me to help them. Lord, do this for them. Do that for them. Let them see you in all your glory. Lord, bring down fire for heaven so that they will know you are God. And he's doing all of this. I'm interceding on the behalf of another. And we get to the lone broom tree. And what does he do? Lord, what about me? When your prayer life becomes more about you instead of the glory of God and the people around you, you're in trouble. Selfishness has come in. Now, it's not bad to pray for yourself. I pray that every day, Lord, protect me, watch over me, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. But if it becomes all about you, then you're missing the point of prayer. Next, it seems, he says, notice in verse, the end of verse 4, He said under the tree, Lord, I've had enough. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Who said you had to be? Why does he think he has to be better than his ancestors? Why is he worried about competition? Who cares if he's better 
or worse than those who came before him or those who will come after him? Does it really, what, what really gives? As long as he did what God asked him to do, then he's in God's hall of fame. He's been obedient, but he's concerned about what people will think of him. He's concerned about where he ranks in the grand scheme of things. And instead of worrying about the game, he's looking at the scoreboard, wondering how many stats he has and whether or not he's the leading scorer. So we see Elijah rationalizing feelings. But what he didn't remember and what we need to remember is the flawed heroes of Scripture that have gone this way with Elijah. Before we're too hard on Elijah, I must tell you that we cannot forget that he's not the only one to struggle with despondency and even that of depression. Abraham did. The great father Abraham. Jonah, after the greatest revival to ever take place, he preaches to Nineveh an eight-word sermon, and they all bow the knee to God. And he goes out and he sits under a tree. There must be something about sitting under a tree and being depressed. And he says, I want to die, Lord. Take my life. Just sad. Saul, Job, Jeremiah, man, that guy was a train wreck. That guy was the weeping prophet, man. He couldn't pull himself together to save his life. He wrote a whole book lamenting on how bad his life was. Some of you are there today. Uh It is a nice sunny day, isn't it? It could be sunnier. It's a, it's a decent, you know, March morning. Could be warmer. Baseball's going to begin soon. The socks could be better. Everything's half empty. Only one of those are true. I'll leave that to you to figure out which one. But empty pessimism over and over again. That's Jeremiah. David, anguished. Struggled. Even the Apostle Paul one time said that being beat up and dealing with the trials and the tribulations that he faced gave up all hope at one point, even of life, in 2 Corinthians it says. Going into church history, reformers like Calvin, Luther, even my favorite preacher of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, dealt with long bouts of depression that would keep him out of the pulpit and keep him from his ministry. And I would go even as far to say as yours truly experienced a year of depression that was so agonizing and so painful, I wouldn't wish it upon my greatest enemy. We all struggle with it. And if you're sitting there struggling with depression and and despair today, you're in a good group. But we got to get out of there. We've got to move beyond it. But before we do, we need to be reminded of something. I want you to add this to your outlines just in there, just under that bullet point of the remembering the flawed heroes. And that is this. I added this early this morning. Be reminded of some common factors that cause depression. Be reminded of some common factors that cause depression. After we have remembered the flawed heroes of Scripture, we now need to know what causes it. What what is the thing that brings it? First of all, in in, uh, Elijah's life, Elijah is totally spent. He's emotionally and physically drained. And maybe today some of us are running ragged. And that's not how God built us. The times where I become depressed, the times I become negative are the times when I am most 
tired. I've been working hard. I've been serving. I've been doing everything for everybody else. And I sit down and the stupid thought comes into my bald head and it says, well, what about you, Tim? When are people going to start serving you? Well, nobody cares about you. That's why they're not doing it. Why aren't people encouraging you, Tim? And it begins the ugly cycle. Then I'm a miserable father. I'm a miserable husband. And I want everybody to go. I'm not like Elijah. I don't want to be by myself. I want everybody under the broom tree with me. If I'm going to be miserable, you're all going to be miserable. My fellow elders have seen some miserable elder meetings because of a miserable Tim. Because we're dumb enough to have elder meetings on Monday right after a busy weekend. What causes it? We're physically and emotionally spent. We know that seasons can cause us to become discouraged. You say, Tim, come on, how biblical is that? Let me just tell you something. When you wake up and it's dark and you get home from work and it's dark, that's miserable. When it's cold and it's dry and it's, and it's, and it's just gray and everything is a chore in the Chicago winter, it can become miserable. And I recognize that there are brothers and sisters in our midst who are just dying for some warm weather to come, just to get outside. I know some of you moms, my goodness, Amanda prays for 60-degree weather. Get out of my house, she says. I don't want to see you till twilight. It can do that to us. Sickness. I speak of sickness in two ways. First of all, I speak of sickness in regards to some of you are struggling with illnesses that won't go away. And it's brought discouragement. You've gotten bad medical reports. And it's brought great despair in your life that you fear for your life. As well as the sickness that we recognize. That even some depression can be linked to physiological things. We had a woman in our midst who was struggling with depression. And she came and spoke to me. And she said, I can't snap out of it. I, I can't. Every time I try to, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I said, before we do any counseling in any way and talk about it, I want you to go get a uh, physical. And she found out that she had an underactive uh, thyroid. And now she's on one pill a day. And we never counseled after that. Her body just needed some help producing whatever thyroids produce to take care of that. And so many times when you come for counseling, one of the things that the pastor may say is, first of all, go get checked out. Make sure everything's running as it needs to. Let's make sure we're not dealing with a physiological issue because that can be one of them. Now, those are some of the external ones. Now, notice some internal ones. Sin can be one. Some of you may be depressed today because you are unwilling to give up a sin. And instead of following God and and feasting on him, you're digging into the garbage and you're wondering why you feel like garbage. Well, because you're eating that stuff and you're drinking that stuff. And as a result of that, David, when he sinned a great sin of sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah, Psalm 32 says, for over a year of time, he was in anguish. My bones are in anguish, he said, depressed. Why? Because he was unwilling to confess. And he doesn't until Psalm 51. Sin is one. Satan can be another. Paul says that he was tormented by a messenger of Satan. And through his attacks 
and through his lies, we can believe those things. He gets into relationships. Satan can be a cause of our discouragement. And I would be remiss if I didn't add God's sovereignty can cause discouragement. You say, what kind of God would do that? Let me tell you, my year of depression, as I look back, was God's sovereign hand in making me to be a better son of his. And I love him for it. Oh, I don't ever want to go through it again. Just as I don't ever want to go through the years of of, of spanks and and, and, uh, punishment from my parents, I'm glad for it. I'm thankful for it. I'm a better person as a result of it. What may be causing that? I don't know if that's an exhaustive list, but that gives us a picture. Elijah, though, is spent, and we could recognize that there's no doubt that he was believing the lies of the devil, that Jezebel was going to kill him. We have no doubt that God's sovereign hand was in Elijah's life. Now, notice what happens God comes in the moment where Elijah needs him, even though God, he isn't even really asked God for his help. He's just asking God to kill him. Notice what God does. He brings medicine to encourage us. The medicine that God gives to encourage us. Notice verse 5, the second part. He shows us care. Elijah lays down under the tree, falls asleep. At, all at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down. How theological. God comes, the angel of the Lord comes, and his words to Elijah are, get some food and get some water and go lay down again. Some of us in our times of despair need to just eat. We need to drink some liquid. We need to lay down. In our small group, we talked about this, that many, many fights between husbands and wives happen because we're hungry or because we're tired. And so we battle each other over and over again because we're irritable, because our physical needs have not been met. And God says, hey, physical is important. Get some food, get some drink. So he tells them to eat, drink. He tells them to sleep. And then notice the grace and the care that is given. Notice what he says. In verse 7, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. God had a journey for him. And I think there's some grace in that. God says, it's not good for you to just sit around. And so what I want you to do is I want you to head to Horeb, 200 miles away. So he's going, where he's gone is from the middle part of Israel... He he came from Zarephath, which was Lebanon. He goes to Mount Carmel, which is about the middle central part of Israel. And now he travels down to Beersheba, down in the the southern kingdom of Judah. And now he's going to go just to the west, I'm sorry, to the east of Egypt. Just keeps heading farther and farther. 200 miles. What is good for a despondent heart? Windshield time. Just walk. I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to prophesy about anything. I just want you to walk. This is where I want you to go. And that's what he does. But notice what he does. He gives him one meal, a great happy meal, and it strengthens him for 40 days and 40 nights. Some of you moms who are writing those checks for groceries want to get that recipe. I know you do. What can feed my kids for 40 days and 40 nights? 
Now notice the compassion that God gives. In verses 9 through 11, the word of the Lord came to him. Because Elijah in verse 9 has gone into a cave and he spends the night. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I wonder if he's just crying this. Like the sissy girl that he is at this moment. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death. And I'm the only one left. And you know what, God? They want to kill me too. He cries out. And notice what God says. He doesn't say, hey, you dummy. Snap out of it. What are you doing, man? I didn't make you like that. He doesn't say any of that. He asks a question. One of the best ways to counsel someone who is depressed or dealing with despair is just to ask some questions. Don't get into declarations. Just ask, what's going on? What are you thinking about? What are, what, what are you wanting? What, what's, what's wrong? Let him declare that. God is so gracious. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't even rebuke. He just asks questions. He tells him in verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. God says the medicine that you need, Elijah, is a closer walk with me. Some of you are looking for that medicine that will take away your depression. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but let me tell you, no pill will take care of what only God can do. And a closer walk with him is going to take care of a lot of ills. And God says, I want you to see me. I want you to see what I'm about to do. And notice within that there's some clarification. There's some clarification. What and why does God do what he does? Let's see. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord's done this before. Mount Horeb is uh, Mount Sinai. This is where Moses was at. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, tore them apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after that, the fire came. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Pyrotechnics. I mean, the best of Hollywood could ever do. The wind comes, and it's like the scene in Twister. The earthquake comes, and, and we've seen that, and the images are horrifying to be a part of an earthquake. And then the fire comes, and God says, I'm not in any of those. What is God doing to Elijah? What he's wanting Elijah to know is that God is not just a God of fireworks and razzle-dazzle. And some of us think that way. Some of us will not have a close walk with God until he starts showing us something. God, what have you done for me lately? You do this, I'll follow you. You do that, I'll be more of your servant. And God says, hey, I just need to show you a little earth, wind, and fire. I just got to give you a little image. And God, I'm not, he says, I'm not in any of that. But then he whispers. We don't know what it sounded like but a gentle whisper in silence. And I think what God was doing was clarifying Elijah's theology. 
You think I'm all done. I brought fire down from heaven. I've kept the rains from coming in. And Ahab and Jezebel still haven't bowed the knee to me. Understand this. I can change a person's heart with my whisper. I don't need to do anything. But just speak quietly into the heart. And I can change the world. Some of us need to recognize that this morning. God doesn't need to do all these great and momentous things. But we just need to pray, Lord, whisper into the heart of my brother or my sister or my friend or my coworker. Speak into the heart of my wayward child. You don't have to do all this big and grandiose things, but you can change the world with just a whisper. He clarifies I can do whatever I want, God is saying. I can use whatever methods I want. And so Elijah comes out, he hears the, uh, the, the voice of God, and he comes out to the mouth of the cave, and notice what he says again. Verse 13, the voice comes, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah won't quit. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, yada, yada, yada. Have you ever noticed that when we're depressed, we repeat ourselves? Just over and over and over again. And God's not done. It's not strike one, Elijah, strike two, strike three, get out of here. But God shows his compassion. And notice what he does. He gives a mission to discourage Christians to engage in. He gives them a mission. Let me close with these thoughts. In verses 15 through the end of the chapter, God says, I'm not done with you. If you recognize anything today, depressed brother or sister in my midst today, it is this. Though you may be broken, though you may be hurting, though you may feel like God has turned you upside down and you feel like you'll never get out of this funk, God still has a plan for you. He does. He wants to use you in mighty ways. He's not done with you, and he will not be done with you until he calls you home. Not when you want to be called home, but when he calls you home. Now notice what he does. He reminds Elijah of his calling. God says to Elijah, I know your thinking is skewed by your depression. I know you're not thinking straight. I know that you don't want to go another step, but I have a job for you. You're a prophet. I called you to be a prophet, and here's what I want you to do. Now, notice what he says. I want you to go up, uh, anoint three guys. Hazael, king over Aram. Jehu, son of Nifshni. Those are great names for you if you're having kids. And Elisha, two kings, one prophet. Why would that be good for Elijah to do? First of all, anointing in the Old Testament was one of the perks of being a prophet. Because when you anointed someone to a role, there was a party that would take place. There was great celebration. And many of these things that took place would take years to have happen. The first guy that he uh, anoints, it would be 20 years before he would rule. uh, I'm sorry, Jehu, uh, verse 16. Jehu would take 20 years before he would take the reins of Israel. But how his parents must have been so excited when, when young Jehu's out playing by his home, and here comes Elijah the prophet, 
And he says, you're going to be king. I'm the prophet of the Lord. And I think there's some grace there. God says, no more condemning, no more bringing down uh, pronouncements of curses. I'm going to give you some fun. I'm going to give you something that's easy. You're going to anoint some people. They're going to be excited. There's going to be some festivities. You need that. You need to get into some partying. You need some help. But notice the second thing, where anointing took place, no doubt those people would have said, I'm not capable. I'm not ready. How do I do this? I'm all thumbs to this. This is new to me. And Elijah the prophet, no doubt, would have to say, God will meet you in your hour of need. God will take care of you. God will protect you. And what God, what, what God did in Elijah's life is he started to remind Elijah of what God had done for him. God had protected me. I didn't know what I was doing when I went to talk with Ahab, but he's protected me up to this point. He's taken care of me. It's not all been fun but he's ministered to me. And many times, the last thing we want to do is minister to others, and that's exactly what we need to do to get out of the funk that we're in. Number two, he needed to be reconnected to other Christians. Elijah's told in verse 18 uh, the following. He says, um, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Here, Elijah keeps saying, I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm the only one left. He says that numerous times. And I wonder if the great philosopher Michael Jackson's words came true. You are not alone. I am here. I've always wanted to do that in a preaching (laughs) lesson. God says, you're not alone. I'm here with you. But let me tell you something else. There are 7,000. That's a lot, isn't it? 450 doesn't stand to 7,000. There are 7,000 who are just like you, Elijah. And what a reminder. Brothers and sisters, we come so discouraged to this place. Sometimes we're so discouraged, I can't even go to church. I can't even get myself ready to go to church. And and there's brothers and sisters in our midst who this very morning are wanting with all their might to come to church and just, just can't. I'm broken. What will people think of me? Look at me. Nobody wants to spend time with me. I'm a loser. And some of you are feeling that way today. And let me tell you something. The pastors and the elders don't tell you to come to church so we can raise our attendance numbers. But we need to constantly be connected to other believers. It's for our own good. And we need to be praying. I give you a prayer on Sunday morning. As you're getting ready, Lord, bring my brothers and sisters so that I can be an encouragement to them. Because no doubt, in this place today, there are people who are completely broken and wanting to give up. You don't know this, but we had a gentleman just a couple weeks ago that had to be hospitalized because he was suicidal from our midst who came in in tears, crying out, God, kill me. I want to die. And the elders are ministering to him now. And I can tell you, none of you would have known. Had I not been an elder and been a part of it, I would have never known because our brother would have never shown it. And some of us are so depressed deep down inside. 
We're not there. And so that means, brothers and sisters, we have to connect in a whole new way. This will not be accomplished with a donut in one hand and a coffee in the other. And how's your day? You're doing fine. How about you? Yeah, Cubs are looking good this year. Yes, they are. That's not going to accomplish it. But getting to the heart and the lives of people will. He's given a companion, Elisha. He's going to be there with him, even though God had, Elijah had gotten rid of his other attendant. Now Elijah's given another one. And notice what he's given. He's given an opportunity to be ready to coach others to take his place. Elisha comes. I'm sorry, he goes to Elisha, and Elisha's working. There's a guy working out in the field, plowing with oxen. And Elijah comes to Elisha, and he says, Hey, put my mantle over you. That means you're going to be the next prophet. You're going to be me in a couple years. And Elisha goes running after Elijah. I think it's ironic that it speaks of that. I don't know if it's true or not, if God wanted it in there or not. But I think it's ironic that in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 19, Elisha runs away, and here we have Elisha who is running too. Some of us are so tired of the rigmarole and all of the, of the tedious things of life that we're ready to give up in our latter days of life, just giving up on God and just kind of retiring from Christianity and all of that. And that is all the more why you need to be plugged into young people. Because young people, they are youthful. They are exuberant. They're fired up about their faith. One thing I love about seeing our teenagers is that they're fired up about their faith. They're sharing the gospel with other people. And I need to remember that in my cynical uh, thinking. Ah, who's going to ever turn to Jesus? People are so stupid. They're not going to do it. And yet our young people we hear over and over again, Mario tells us, of kids that are coming to know Christ. The gospel being shared. We need to be challenged by that youthful exuberance. But we have a job to do. Elijah is given an attendant to speak into his life and to disciple him. You want a ministry that will bring great joy to your heart, that will take care of a lot of the ills in our life? Start pouring into the lives of other people. I can't tell you the days I've had just broken and just wanting to give up and the first steps into the laundry room at the Badal house changes it all. It isn't because of Amanda, because she's been with those boys all day long. But I get the joy of coming in and hearing, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! Dad, can we do this? Dad, can we do that? And their youthful exuberance, and I'm reminded my job is not done, and your job isn't either. Elijah had a job to do. God was going to take care of it and see to it that it was done, and he just needed to be obedient. I want you to close your eyes as we close. I want you to close your eyes and I want you just to think for a moment. Maybe today this message hits you because you are struggling with discouragement. You are Elijah. I want you to know I know what it's like. I've been there and I know I'll go through it, I'm sure again, and it's painful. But I want you to know that God is greater than all of it. Turn your eyes on him. Do what he says. Make sure you take good care of yourself. Stay connected with other believers. Remember that God has called you, that God loves you, that God has a plan for you. As difficult as it may be, do that plan with all of your heart. 
knowing that God promises that he will meet you every step of the way. For those that aren't finding themselves discouraged today, ask this question. Why has God allowed you to have joy? The reason why God has allowed you to have joy is so that you can be joy for others. So ask today, who in my world is Elijah this morning? Who's hurting? Who's struggling? Whose world has turned, been turned upside down? Lord, lead me to that person so that I can help them in their hour of need.